I encourage you to take your Bible, find Hebrews 11 in your Bible. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 29. I think when you see this, you'll see this is a very familiar passage of Scripture, but uh, we're going to read it together. So after you've found Hebrews 11, stand with me. Let's read it. Uh, let's think about God's Word as we read through it. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry ground, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your precious word. Lord, we thank you that it is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, that it Peers to the deepest level of our being, and it weighs out our hearts, not only our hearts, but our motives and uh, our incentives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would um, help us as we study your word again today, that uh, we would be open and receptive to hear your word. And, Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that indwells each and every believer and we thank you that we have a resonant truth teacher in us that uh, enlightens your truth to our hearts and minds, and we thank you for that. But Lord, we uh, pray this morning that as we uh, think about your truth, as we respond to your truth, that uh, we would do so in such a way that would be pleasing to you. And Lord, we uh, thank you for the opportunity and privilege we have to worship you. We thank you that uh, we can sing our praises and uh, that we can glorify your name. And, uh, Lord, we know that all things ultimately are for your glory and honor. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that our our heart, our worship would be genuine, that our uh, hearts would be filled with gratitude for what you have done in redeeming us and saving us. And so, Lord, we pray this morning once again that uh, you would uh, work in our midst, that you would accomplish your purpose uh, as we uh, look at your word, as we worship Lord, that these things would be used of you. So, Lord, this morning we thank you again and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Life can be defined in a number of different ways, but one important way that you can define it is to say that your life consists of the decisions you make. And without going into the theological aspect of the bondage of the will, I think we would have to say that life is made up of a series of decisions. Most of those decisions are simple and unimportant, 
but many of them are significant and extremely important. Most of our decisions we make without really thinking about them, but there are some that we think about for a long time. And of course, there are some decisions that we make by default. When we fail to decide, our decision is made for us, but it is still our decision because we decided not to decide. Decision-making is so important, I think someone ought to write a book about it. But, hint, hint, but when we are honest, we would have to say that the quality of our lives is determined more by our decisions than our circumstances. And although I do hold strongly to the sovereignty of God in the affairs of men, I do not embrace fatalistic determinism. I believe that in his sovereignty, God has allowed men a measure of freedom by which we can make choices. And those choices have consequences. Decision-making is a key element in the Christian life. In fact, you can really define the Christian life in terms of making right choices. And I think you can tell really how mature a Christian is by just looking at the choices they make. John MacArthur says, Our Christian living rises or falls in maturity and holiness on the basis of the decisions we make. Of course, we understand that this is what temptation is all about, even for Christians. When Satan tempts us to sin... We can decide to say yes or no. When we get an opportunity to be a witness for Christ, we can take advantage of it or we can shrink back in fear. Every day we have to make decisions like whether or not we're going to take some time to read our Bible or to pray for others or to minister in Jesus' name. In the business world... We, as Christians, have to determine if we're going to make money at all costs or practice integrity and ethical honesty first and foremost. We have to decide if we're going to sell our soul to the company store and sacrifice our family for the sake of getting ahead and making another deal or if we are going to balance out our lives and include our family as a high priority. It is safe to say that virtually every aspect of our life involves making decisions. In fact, we see illustrations of that all throughout Scripture. From the decision of the first man, Adam, to the decisions of the Israelites in the wilderness, to the decisions of the foolish kings of Israel, we see many examples of bad decision-making. But in contrast to that, here in Hebrews eleven twenty-three to 29, we see an example of good decision-making. We see Moses making the right decisions and doing that by faith. 
Right choices are always by faith. MacArthur says right choices are made on the basis of right faith, and often we cannot see the consequences of our choices. Satan tries to make his way seem attractive and good, and God's way seem hard and unenjoyable. And when we know God's will in a matter, we choose it by faith. We know it is the right choice because it is God's will, even before we see the results. And God's will, then, is the only reason we need. In other words, faith always believes that God's way is best and chooses that way. It is also believing that Satan is a liar and the father of lies, and that his way is always deceptive and empty and destructive. So this is that shield of faith that Paul talked about that will help us to quench the fiery darts of the evil one and enable us then to make the right decisions that will bring about God's best in our lives. Perhaps there is no greater text in the New Testament that illustrates this point than the one that we're looking at today. In Ephesians, or in uh, Hebrews 11, 23 through 29, we have this long section on Moses. It really should not be surprising. Next to Abraham, Moses was the most highly regarded ancestor in Israel. And he, of course, wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Jesus even said of him, Moses wrote of me. That's John 5:46. Moses was one who was venerated by all the Jewish people as one who was especially close to God. Unlike others, God spoke to Moses face to face. And at one point, the people even had to cover up Moses' face because it was glowing after he had spoken to God. Guthrie says, in certain expressions of Jewish tradition, he was considered the greatest man in history. And there is no other person in Scripture other than Jesus that illustrates the power of right decision-making than Moses. His decision-making was right because his faith was right. His unwavering faith in God led to the monumental decisions that he made that not only changed his own life in a radical way, but also changed the course of a nation. And even though Moses is usually associated with the law of God received on Mount Sinai, we must understand that Moses was a great man of faith. In the minds of most Jews, Moses is affiliated with the commandments of the law, the rituals and the ceremonies of the Old Covenant, and the religious requirements that the Jews were never able to keep. But he is a wonderful example of true biblical faith. And that is what we must see from this 
passage of Scripture. In fact, this is really a key element of the argument being communicated here by the author of Hebrews. Because the Jews had such great respect for Moses, if it could be demonstrated that Moses lived by faith and not according to legalism, it would be one of the most powerful arguments for the New Testament doctrine of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. So let's move into this passage of Scripture, and it can be organized in a number of different ways, but we're going to take it in three main divisions. We're going to see the vision of faith, the values of faith, and the victory of faith. That's the main outline. We're going to have a few subpoints sprinkled in there as well. But let's begin with the vision of faith. Look with me again at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, the first aspect of Moses' life was more the faith of his parents, but this faith was passed down to him. Herschel Hobbes calls this the faith of daring love. Moses' parents feared God more than they did the king of Egypt. And as I'm sure you know, the Egyptian pharaoh was becoming concerned about how large the population of the Israelites had grown. And so he commanded all the Hebrews to throw their baby boys into the Nile River. G. Campbell Morgan called the Nile River the river of death because there would have been no doubt that any baby thrown into it would not have survived. And, of course, the assumption is that if they did not do that, they themselves would be put to death. But Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, were not afraid of this edict. They saw that there was something special about this baby boy, and so they hid him for three months. And, of course, when they could no longer hide him, they made, as I'm sure you no, a waterproof basket for him, and they put him in the river later to be found by Pharaoh's daughter. <clears throat> and I'm assuming you know the story, and so I won't spend time this morning going over it again. The account of Moses' birth is found in Exodus chapter 2. Amram and Jochebed were two Jewish slaves who had gotten married during the oppression of the Egyptian bondage. And Moses also had an older sister, Miriam, who watched his basket as it floated in the Nile River and ended up calling his own mother to nurse the child for Pharaoh's daughter. But the point here is that Moses' parents did not give in to the pressures of their day. And even at the threat of their lives, they chose to do things God's way. They chose to live by faith and to trust God instead of conforming to the demands of the world. By the way, the phrase there in verse 23, 
they saw he was a beautiful child probably means much more than he was a good-looking baby. In Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's sermon before the Sanhedrin, he indicated that Moses was lovely in the sight of God. That's verse 20. The word esteon, which is used there, communicates some superior quality about this child. And therefore, the NIV translated translates it, he was no ordinary child. There had to have been some unusual quality about him, perhaps accompanied by special revelation from God. But Moses' parents somehow knew that God was going to use this child in a unique way. In fact, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, Special revelation was given to Moses' father, Amram, in a night vision about the special role that his son would play in the life of the nation of Israel. Now, whether that is accurate or not, this passage seems to imply that his parents had some sort of special insight into the significance of Moses in God's plan. Therefore, they were not afraid to risk their own lives to save the life of their son. They disregarded the king's command. You know, sometimes it is right to disregard the king's commands. We have other examples of that in Scripture. That's a different sermon. I won't chase that rabbit this morning. But in this case, the parents of Moses knew this was God's will. God had special plans for this baby. So they violated human authority because they believed in a higher authority, the authority of Almighty God. They believed God, and by faith, they witnessed the amazing protection of their son. And by the way, just... Think about the human side of this. I mean, imagine how their hearts must have ached as they placed that little baby in that basket and put him in the river of death. Put yourself in that position. Yes, they acted rationally and carefully in making every provision they could humanly make for him, but ultimately they had to trust him to God. I mean, think about it. How could they have imagined that the very daughter of Pharaoh would come and rescue their son and then call for a Hebrew woman to care for him until he was old enough to live in the royal court? How could they have imagined that? The Bible tells us that the daughter of Pharaoh immediately knew that Moses was a Hebrew baby. But she didn't throw him to the crocodiles. Instead, she took him as her own son. How could they have seen that happening? And how could they have believed that once Moses became a prince in the Egyptian court, that he would follow the way of the Lord instead of the pagan humanistic religion of Egypt? All this was by faith. 
from a human perspective, they had no way of knowing that his life would even be spared, much less that he would grow up and become the deliverer of the Jewish nation. But they trusted him to God, and God honored their faith. Now, another important thing to think about in this story is the fact that Jochebed knew that she only had a short period of time to instill in him a love for the true God. She only had a short amount of time to teach him about God's special covenant with Israel and to explain to him the salvation plan of God. And the application for us is obvious. Because we know from later decisions in Moses' life that she was successful in doing that. And his mother helped to build in him that faith that would become the predominant characteristic of his later life and shape all his decisions. And for us, we need to remember that we only have a short period of time to instill that kind of love for God in our own children. And sometimes we may think we have a a long time, but it's amazing how fast that time goes. We need to make sure we do everything we can to teach them the ways of the Lord while we can. But I have to move on to a second main division this morning, and that is the values of faith. In verses 24 to 27, we see the values that Moses exhibited in his later life. Most of this is communicated in a negative format in regard to what he later rejected. In order to say yes to God, he first had to say no to some very enticing things. Not only did Moses' parents demonstrate faith in God, but Moses himself did as well. And what we see in this is that genuine biblical faith rejects four aspects of worldliness. Four aspects of worldliness. First of all, it rejects worldly prestige. Look with me at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, most of us read that and we think that this was probably when Moses was perhaps uh, in his late teens. But what we need to understand here is that the phrase, when he had grown up, literally means when he was fully grown. In fact, according to Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, he was about 40 years old at this time. And you may know that the Bible writers divided Moses' life into three main segments, each lasting 40 years each. This was the first of those three segments. For 40 years, Moses had been a prince in Egypt, which, by the way, was the wealthiest, most cultured and advanced society of that day. There is no doubt that Moses had become highly educated, cultured, and skilled as a part of the royal court. 
Acts 7, 22 says, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. He was a powerful man. One commentator said his formal education would have included learning to read and write hieroglyphics, hieratic, and probably some Canaanite languages. There's absolutely no doubt he was one of the most educated men of his day. And of course, he also learned the Hebrew language from his mother and father. And it was in that language that he learned about all the promises of God to his people. And the point of this passage is that although he enjoyed everything that Egypt had to offer, his training in Egypt never blunted his knowledge of the hope of Israel and the covenant promises of God. He came to a point where he had to make a critical decision. His decision was to reject all the prestige of Egypt in order to identify with the people of God. And we're told he did this by faith. The deciding factor was his faith in God. And after all these years, his early childhood training kicked in and he made the right decision. Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't go into this, but the biblical account tells us how this worked out practically. By choosing to intervene on behalf of a Hebrew slave that was being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster and killing that Egyptian, he, in essence, crossed the line, identifying himself then with his own people and forfeiting his place in Egypt. O'Brien says he thus effectively renounced his position as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and his actions spoke louder than his words. He then left Egypt and went to Midian. So what we'd have to say is that this is the faith of self-denial. The word for refused in Hebrews 11.24 means he took a definite position. There was a line in the sand, as it were, and Moses chose to cross that line. He made a willful and deliberate choice to renounce his status as a prince in Egypt and to publicly identify himself with his suffering people. So what kind of application is there for us today? You know, we live in a world where fame brings with it a lot of prestige. If you were born into a certain family, or you have a certain kind of athletic ability, or you are a well-known entertainer, people will begin to think you are great whether you are or not. If you have a lot of money... Regardless of how you got it, our world will hold you in high esteem. Unless your name is Donald Trump, right? <clears throat> if you have enough degrees behind your name, or you have written popular books, or you have a certain academic recognition as an expert, the world will laud your wisdom. If you can put a basketball in a round hoop, 
or carry a football into the end zone or hit a baseball over the outfield wall, people will fall all over themselves to get your autograph and to elevate you to superstar status. But what we have to understand here in this passage is that Moses had all this, but he turned his back on it. He rejected it. He turned away from it. From a human perspective, this was a foolish decision. Why would he sacrifice everything and gain nothing in return? But we learn from the remainder of this passage that Moses had an eternal perspective that guided his decision-making. He saw God's kingdom and purposes as eternal and much greater than the power and prestige of Egypt. The eyes of faith can see that there is something much greater than the prestige and the fame of this world. John MacArthur writes that Baron Justinian von Veltz renounced his title, estates, and income, and went as a missionary to what was then Dutch Guiana. Today, his body lies in a lonely grave, and he is forgotten by the world. But we can assure he is not forgotten by God. As he was preparing to go into missionary service, he said this, What is it to me to bear the title well-born when I am born again to Christ? What is it to me to have the title Lord when I desire to be the servant of Christ? What is it to be called your grace when I have need of God's grace? And then he said, all these vanities I will do away with, and all else I will lay at the feet of my dear Lord Jesus. Folks, genuine believers know that the prestige of this world is nothing in comparison to the eternal glory that awaits those who faithfully follow Christ But notice another thing that faith rejects. It rejects worldly pleasures. Look with me at verse 25. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. This is a short verse, but there is much packed into it. We can learn so much from it. First of all, there is an acknowledgement that there is pleasure in sin. Why do people sin? Because it's fun. It can feed our pride, satisfy our lusts, and meet the desires of many of our physical and emotional appetites. Oh, but what's the problem with sin? It is always passing. It satisfies temporarily, but its euphoria quickly fades. In fact, it then leaves behind a great sense of guilt and emptiness. Any sense of good that sin promises to produce is quickly replaced 
by that which is bad. Sin is always deceptive and fleeting. By its very nature, sin is always evil and has as its source the evil one. But the point in this passage of Scripture is that Moses was able to see through the deceptive nature of the passing pleasures of sin in Egypt and to forsake them. By faith, he made his decision to identify with the people of God, even if it would mean suffering as a result. The eyes of faith can see through the emptiness and deception of the passing pleasures of sin and embrace even ill treatment with the people of God. Paul put it this way. He said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what faith sees. Faith sees beyond the temporal to the eternal. Faith sees beyond the deceptive nature of the passing pleasures of sin and embraces that which will last forever. You know, one of the greatest theological questions raised in Scripture is why the wicked often seem to prosper. Many unbelievers who are immoral and pagan are famous, wealthy, and well-off in practically every way. On the other hand, many of God's most faithful saints are often poor, unsuccessful in business, and in bad health. Why is that? This is a question the Bible answers. In Job 21, for example, Job asked, Why do the wicked still live? Continue on, also become very powerful. Their descendants are established with them in their sight, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, neither is the rod of God on them. Job asked, Why is this? He goes on to mention how successful they are in business, how happy their children seem to be, and how they're always carefree and celebrating. Verse 13 says, they spend their years in prosperity. Job even goes on to question whether it is beneficial to serve God. It seems like the wicked unbeliever is better off. We see the same thing echoed in Jeremiah 21.1. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? The psalmist asked in Psalm 73.12 and 13, Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely, In vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, what good does it do to be righteous? The wicked are the ones who seem to prosper. You know, maybe I would just be better off just to be a pagan unbeliever. Oh, but the Bible answers this question in a way that causes us to change our perspective on it. In Job 21.13, it says, They spend their days in prosperity, 
but suddenly they go down to Sheol. They enjoy all those temporary pleasures, but then suddenly they die and it's all over except for judgment. They get by with their sin for a while, but only for a while. Job 25 says, the triumphing of the wicked is short. In the New Testament, in the book of James, we see those referred to who lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. But James warns, come now, you rich Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. There's coming a day of judgment when all your wealth will be worthless. All your prestige will be worthless. In fact, it will become a witness against you that you chose temporal pleasures over the things of God. But getting back to Moses, he knew that God was calling him to give his life in service and sacrifice for his people. He made a right choice, and praise God, he chose to identify himself with God's people. MacArthur says he could have obeyed or disobeyed. Disobeying had many attractions. Among other things, it would have been a lot easier and more enjoyable in the short run. Of course, it would have been a lot easier for him to just stay there in the royal palace and enjoy all the pleasures of Egypt. You know, it's hard to refuse worldly pleasures. It's much harder to give them up once you have them. Moses had been enjoying the pleasures of Egypt for 40 years. Now, don't misunderstand here. There's nothing in the text that would indicate that he was involved in anything immoral, but he enjoyed the pleasures of an extremely comfortable life. He had the best food. He had the best sleeping quarters, the best recreation, the best of everything that his age could provide. But the point is, it was not God's will for his life. So he had to make a decision. Would he stay in that comfortable life or take his stand with the people of God. And we know what he decided. He chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And for this, Moses is a great example of faith. He believed that what God wanted for him was better in the long run. And in the same way, God has called us as believers to live a holy life that is pleasing to Him. He has called us to separate our lives from sin. Obedience to His will is not always easy. In fact, it is seldom easy. But ultimately, 
it is the best. Will we be as wise as Moses? Well, we're going to have to stop here for today. This is going to have to be another one of my infamous two-parters. But we'll pick it up here next time. What about you this morning? Are you a person of faith? Are you one who makes decisions on the basis of your faith in God, believing that God's way is always best? Are you a person who's willing to turn away from sin and reject sin, knowing it's just deceptive and empty, only temporary? Are you a person that sees and values the things that really count, the things of eternity? I hope and pray you are. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to understand this passage of Scripture, that we might uh, respond to it the way you'd want us to, that we would indeed be people of faith. I pray if there's someone here today that has never uh, put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord uh, and Savior, that they would come to do that today. And Lord, that those of us who are believers, that we would be uh, those people who live daily by faith, making right decisions, making faith decisions, uh, as we see uh, given as an illustration here today in Moses. So, Lord, help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.